It says in verse 40, therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask, Help us now to continue in our time of worship Lord we've sang we've prayed and we believe this is worship as well as we open our hearts and souls and minds to receive the truth of your word we pray that your Holy Spirit who inspired your word and gave it to us would be our instructor and our interpreter now and that every intent behind this portion of scripture that you said is profitable all of it Lord would have the greatest profit in our lives this morning. Speak to us individually and directly. We ask you would bless your word to our hearts and speak to us now in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, last week and of course now this upcoming week, uh, most of us know and we see on the television screens that this is sort of the time of the political conventions. Uh, And as both the political parties have their big conventions, of course, the focal point tends to be on all of the different speakers and the speeches that they can collectively gather to the best of their ability. And of course, the goal is to have the most powerful impact uh, for your particular uh, campaign or candidate. So they gather sort of the big guns and those who they think can have the greatest impact by what they say and the words that they'll communicate And I can't help because I am curious on occasion. I often tend to wonder sometimes with things like this, just what would actually happen if one of those speakers, many of which are very, very scripted, of course, and probably honed in on exactly what they would prefer for them to say. I often tend to wonder what would happen if one of them just totally deviated from the script and said, you know what, I think it's actually best to just share with you the word of the Lord. I mean, just can you imagine, I mean, national television and I mean, would, you know, some hook come out and yank them off the stage? I mean, if somebody just took the opportunity with that kind of audience and impact to say, you know, this is what I really feel would be the best thing to share. And if they just began to share the word of the Lord. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning here in our uh, section in John's gospel really gives to us a record of the resulting effects of having just heard the word of the Lord. And we'll see as we go through it together that certainly there are very different responses to hearing the word of the Lord. We also see when we get to around verse 43 that division resulted spiritually 
because of hearing the word of the Lord that Jesus had just spoken. And then we'll also see as well and draw attention to as we get from around verse 44 to the end of the text, the incredibly powerful impact that the word of the Lord has when people hear it, both in a negative sense and in a positive sense, despite, uh, depending upon how people respond uh, to it. Now, remember, the background, what is very important to what we're looking at this morning from last week, we saw that Jesus, at a very critical time, at a very critical place, uh, a, a time when the whole nation was paying attention and assembled together there in Jerusalem celebrating one of the major feast days, the Feast of Tabernacles. In the midst of that occasion, Jesus made a very, very bold set of declarations regarding himself personally and saying that he himself was the solution to people's deepest need in their life. Can I refresh your memory? If you look up in chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, Jesus said there, in case you weren't with us last week, but this is the backdrop. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So there Jesus makes this declaration that in the same way that people have a physical need for water it's essential to health and to survival and therefore god's created a corresponding thirst drive physically to to cause people to satisfy that need of physical thirst that in the same way we all have a need spiritually in our lives for god we were created for god and an experience with god and so because of that jesus uses this analogy that in the same way god has therefore created a spiritual thirst in every person and it's what causes people to drink from this well and to pursue that well and to try all these different things in life, experiences and relationships and substances and all these things. We are trying to satisfy the deepest need, the spiritual thirst within us is driving us to find fulfillment for it. And it's not until we realize that that need can only be met by Jesus that our thirst is quenched and we find inner satisfaction. So Jesus here makes this incredibly, you have to understand, very direct statement drawing attention and people directly to himself in the midst of a crowd. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There you will find the solution. There you will find satisfaction. And as a result of that statement in front of that crowd, we pick up this morning and see, as I said, in our first few verses, first of all, that there were very different responses to all hearing the word of the Lord. Look with me there in verse 40 as our text opens. It says, therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying that Jesus just made, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said differently, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So take note, many hearing the Lord Jesus' words came to a decision. That was the conclusion day, the decision day for them because of what they had heard from him. They made a conclusion and decision about him. Yet some, it says there as well, chose to refuse. 
and to reject the word of the Lord that they heard. And in fact, they even were personally offended by what Jesus said so straightforwardly. So let's talk about that first thing. Many hearing the words of the Lord Jesus came to a decision and a conclusion about him. It says there in verse 40, if you look at the text, that many from the crowd, having heard Jesus say that, said, first of all, truly, this is the prophet. Now notice, the prophet, not a prophet. This is the prophet. That's important, definite article there. They're referring to this special and specific prophet that was foretold about in the Old Testament. This promised prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18 would be sent one day after him. Remember who Moses was in the Old Testament. He was this great shepherd leader of Israel. Moses, as he functioned in that role as a shepherd of the people, spoke the word of the Lord to them. And Moses served, remember, both as a mediator in many ways between God and the people. And he also served as what you might call a deliverer or a savior, someone who delivered the people out of the bondage of slavery that they were in. <clears throat> and Moses himself then at one point gave a prophecy telling the people as God directed him to, that God was going to send a prophet like himself, a shepherd leader, a mediator, a deliverer, savior out of bondage and slavery, like himself would one day come, but greater than him. Listen to Deuteronomy 18. This is what they're referring to. Deuteronomy 18 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Moses says, And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name I will require it of him or hold them accountable for it. So very clearly this was this prophecy from the Old Testament that a prophet greater than Moses, but like Moses, mediator, savior, shepherd, leader, would one day come. And of course, this was a prophecy, a prediction of the Lord Jesus, who would one day be sent as this prophet much greater than Moses, who Moses' life and ministry, in a sense, was a foreshadowing of. It predicted and represented what Jesus would ultimately be. So people, therefore, in Israel lived in this expectancy of Deuteronomy 18 that one day the prophet, this prophet greater than Moses, but like Moses, would one day come and evaluating the presence of Jesus and the life of Jesus and his ministry and his teachings. And now, apparently, what we just saw in John chapter 7, the statements of Jesus boldly made, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That moment, the people hearing that, it caused many to come to the conclusion at that point for themselves, this is the prophet. This is the prophet who was predicted that God would send to us greater than Moses. They came to a belief and decision that Jesus was that one sent from God. We also read there in verse 41 that others made the statement in their profession, this is the Christ, referring to Jesus. Again, the word Christ means the Greek is the anointed one. It's the Greek term for the Hebrew title, the Messiah, that was given to us in the Old Testament. Remember, the Messiah was that promised king or deliverer of Israel that God prophesied he would one day send to his people. 
who would come and function as a savior to set them free and have powerful rulership. And the Old Testament is full of prophecies where God predicted that he would send the Messiah to his people to function as a prophet and priest and king all in one to bring great deliverance for them. And we find a multitude of declarations in the Old Testament about the Messiah. For example, Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, again, upon seeing Jesus, examining his life and now hearing Jesus just make that declaration, it tells us that there were others that day, many, in fact, it says, who ended up saying, coming to their own conclusion, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior, the one the scriptures predicted. The idea here is hearing what Jesus said brought some, brought in fact many in that crowd that day to a place of response and faith. That they put forth their faith in Christ. They believed who he was. And there was this favorable response to accept his word and to embrace his invitation to come to him as the promised Savior and Messiah of the people of God. Yet sadly, as I said, there were different responses that took place as well. Sadly, some chose to refuse and to reject the word of the Lord and even, as I said, were offended by him. We see them next as verse 41 goes on. Here's the other response. But some, though many believed, some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and the town of Bethlehem where David was? So notice, some, upon hearing what Jesus said, had quite honestly the exact opposite. They did not believe his word. And more than that, they took personal offense to how straightforwardly Jesus was speaking and in many ways making a declaration that he was the solution to everyone's spiritual need. And they rejected Jesus' invitation. And as a result of that, it led to a hardened heart and it led to them just becoming more blinded in their spiritual perspective. And we see them here questioning where Jesus came from, disputing that his life did not line up with scripture. And therefore, from their perspective, he did not merit their belief. You notice what's interesting, however, in verse 42, they argued and struggled saying the Christ and the Messiah would not come out of Galilee. Now, again, Galilee, remember, is the northern region of Israel. And that is where Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised in his hometown of Nazareth. And therefore, having grown up in Nazareth and even his ministry headquarters then became, it seems, Capernaum, which also was up in the area of Galilee. So having been raised in Nazareth in the north and his ministry headquarters being in the north, once he began his public ministry, from their perspective, they saw Jesus coming out of Galilee. And in their minds, they felt that disqualified him because they felt anything good and spiritual had to come out of Jerusalem, the religious epicenter in the south. They also, it says here, disputed in verse 42, that the Messiah was to be, look at it says there, from the lineage of David and from the town of Bethlehem. Now that is true. The Bible did prophesy that the Messiah would be born from David's family line. He had to be a family member of King David. But yet, the Bible also reveals, if they would look closer, that Jesus was born 
from the family line of David. We have genealogies in the Bible that record that Jesus was born of the line family-wise of David. They're also trying to say, and he has to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5 predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah would. And again, Jesus was born, be that as it may, in an obscure, dirty, filthy stable in Bethlehem because there was no room for him in the inn, the Bible says. But Luke 2 tells us that Jesus was also born in Bethlehem. So contrary to their insinuation and their purposeful ignorance or their just lack of truly looking into things, Jesus had fulfilled the very scriptures in those areas that they're arguing about. He later just came out of the area of Nazareth because that was where he was raised and where he came forth to begin his public ministry. The point being this, had those rejecting him just looked a little further or let's say just a little more sincerely to truly see for themselves they would have realized their error that they were wrong in their reasoning and their perspective. But it's their religious stubbornness that caused them to fail to see that Jesus was exactly who he was claiming to be. And yet they were somehow in their unbelief with a hardened heart blinded to this and they weren't willing to see the truth about the Lord or to see the truth about what was right and what was wrong spiritually. So therefore, you see in this text here, there were two different responses to the word of the Lord. People heard the exact same thing. Some believed, some responded to Jesus, some came to Jesus, embraced his invitation. Others, we can see here, would not believe. They rejected Jesus, refused his words, and sadly were further blinded. And can I just say, by way of application, the same is true today. There will always, always, always be different responses to hearing the word of the Lord. People can hear the exact same truth. They can, they can be exposed to the word of the Lord in the same hour, in the same meeting, but people will always respond differently to the word of the Lord. Some will believe, others will choose not to believe. Some will choose to embrace Jesus' invitation and come to him. Others will reject Jesus' offer and his words. Read the book of Acts in the early church and you see that happening repeatedly. It did not matter what the gospel presentation was, whether it was Peter, whether it was Paul. Oftentimes you read afterwards, some would respond and believe and then others would choose to harden their hearts and would not believe Yet there always was that difference of response. And the reason why, quite frankly, is because God has created us with a free will. We're created in his image. And God, therefore, honors our right to decide. He draws us. He calls us. He reveals himself to the greatest degree. But he allows us to choose how we respond to him. He allows us to make a decision regarding his word. Listen to Hebrews 4 verse 2, a great illustration of this very point. Hebrews 4 2 says this, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith by those who heard it. Do you hear that? The gospel is preached to us as well as to them, but it says, however, what they heard didn't profit them. It didn't benefit them for one reason. It was not mixed with faith when they heard it. 
See, this is what happens. A person hears the word of the Lord. They hear the word of God. They hear the statements of Jesus. And then they choose and God allows them to choose as a free moral agent whether they will believe that for themselves and say, you know what? I believe that. It may not, and listen, this is where it becomes a choice. You say, I believe that. And sometimes to say, I believe that means to say, maybe everything else I've believed up to this point is wrong. But if that's what the Bible says, I believe that. If that's what Jesus says, I believe that. No matter what I think or how I feel or what my reasoning says, I choose to believe the word of the Lord. And when you mix faith and belief, with the word of the Lord, the word of God, then the benefit and the profit comes. If you choose to not believe, you in a sense rob the power that is there to help in many ways. Not that God's word is devoid of power, but understand how we choose to respond to God's word directs our personal condition spiritually. It affects everything, quite frankly, about our life experience and ultimately it will affect your eternal destiny. Whether you choose to believe or you choose not to believe what the word of the Lord says. So we see there were different responses. Secondly, as we go on now, look in verse 43. Notice now also, secondly, a division resulted spiritually because of Jesus's word or because of the word of the Lord. Not just different responses, but a division resulted spiritually as well. Verse 43 says, so there was a division among the people. Why? Take notice because of him, because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is and because of the absolute truth his life represents and what his words declare. As a result, here's the term, a dividing line was drawn. A dividing line was drawn with Jesus in the center and people choosing to stand on either side with Jesus dividing down the middle. And there comes now, we see in this crowd, as was just expressed in a prior verse, is people choosing to stand on one side or the other in relation to who Jesus is and their response towards him because it says people respond in his word, to his word in a way whereby they believe or they don't believe and then that causes a division or a separation, if you would. Now, now let me say something. Be careful. Please don't misunderstand or misinterpret. Jesus' nature or intention is not to cause division. Jesus isn't seeking to cause separation and create division and pull people apart. In fact, read the Bible. It's the exact opposite. That's the heart and the nature of God and really the whole mission and purpose of the life of Christ. Jesus' very nature and mission is to bring healing and reconciliation. First, between God and sinful men. And then secondly, I believe where sin has caused broken, damaged relationships, there's nothing more unifying than Jesus. Jesus is able to bring people who are so far separated back together through unity and common fellowship with him. So uh, sin separates, Jesus reconciles and restores. That being said, Jesus in who he is as the only Savior, as the only Lord, the one who will declare I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Because of who Jesus is, it will always divide, listen, respondents into two categories. 
it will always cause there to be a divide with Jesus in the middle because you must decide when it comes to Jesus Christ. You must decide when you look at the claims of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says to select a side to stand on is something that happens to everybody. And it happens even when people don't realize they've done it. Jesus made a statement in the Gospels where he said this, He who is not with me is against me. He who is not with me is against me. Because see, sometimes people will say, well, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm not against Jesus. I mean, yeah, I don't want to follow him. I'm not going to be like those weird Christian people. And born-agains or those, you know, hyper-Christian people. I mean, they just, they take it too far. They're a little too serious about it. And, and so we say, I mean, I, I, mean, I like Jesus. He had said some really good things. And I even live by some of his statements. I mean, there's some good stuff in here. I mean, and, and, and they kind of want to have this, you know, path, not an aggressive, but I, I, I'm not, you know, yeah, I'm not with him. But I'm not against him. Jesus says, if you're not with me 100% as a follower, the only other option is you're standing on the other side of the aisle. You are against me. Again, keep in mind, if I, when I asked my wife to marry her, said, would you like to marry me? And she said, you know, let me think about that. Technically, that's no. Right? Because until she says yes, that's no. Well, let me think about it for the next 10 years. That's no. Until she says yes, it's no. And see, the same is true with Jesus. Jesus says, follow me, believe in me. And until a person says yes to Jesus, if you're still considering, contemplating, do you want to follow Jesus? Listen, that's great. You should count the cost for becoming a disciple. But you must understand, even if you're not aggressively against Jesus, if you have not made a personal decision to choose to follow Jesus Christ, if you've not received his salvation, if you've not surrendered to him to follow him as your Lord, you are still standing against Jesus. You are still heading towards eternal damnation whether you want to be or not because there are only two sides to stand upon. There are only two sides. And here we see that Jesus, because of who he is and what he said, it caused this separation. I mean, consider again what Jesus said in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. He didn't say, try this fountain, try that fountain. He made it very narrow, didn't he? I mean, that's very exclusive. Let him come to me and drink because there's only two options. So therefore, we must choose what option we're going to select. Either we will come to Jesus and drink and receive what he offers or we will say, I don't believe that. That's too narrow and I want to try other things. But the word of the Lord, it is. It, it is like a dividing sword that goes down the middle that causes, no doubt, a, a, a separation of two categories, separating light from darkness, separating truth from error. This is what the word of the Lord does and Jesus' life demands a response to pick a side. And when the word of the Lord goes forth, this always happens. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 in relation to what we're speaking of. Luke 12, Jesus said this, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. He says, father will be divided against son, a son against their father, a mother against daughter and a daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's Jesus indicating? As the result of people's choice to respond one way or another towards Jesus, 
even the most close of intimate personal relationships at times will find that there's sort of this division that takes place. And this powerful division because one will choose to follow Christ, another will not follow Christ. And let me just say to those of us who are followers of Jesus this morning, that division is probably one of the most difficult realities a follower of Christ has to accept in their life. That there may come times, situations, and occasions, not that we're seeking to be divisive, but if you want to genuinely love Jesus, live for Jesus, and follow Jesus, the question becomes this for you as a follower of Christ. Will you still stand for Jesus if indeed it means losing the approval of someone else in a relationship? Will you still stand for Jesus, keep believing what you believe, and live according to what you believe, if it means that you lose more than approval, what if you lose connection to that relationship? That's a challenge we have to face as Christians. But it's something that Jesus said is just a reality that takes place because of these spiritual truths that exist. Well, look as we go on in verse 44. We now begin to see as we work through these last verses in our section together, the third thing, as I mentioned earlier, the really powerful impact the word of the Lord has, a powerful, powerful impact. Verse 44 says, Now some of them wanted to take Jesus, but notice, no one laid hands on him. So the religious leaders, this will be the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they want to arrest Jesus now. Why, of course? They want to stop him. Because he's speaking in the temple, as we saw and talked about. But their plan, apparently, according to verse 44, is not working. Now, we know from John chapter 5 that at this point already, because of Jesus' violation of their Sabbath traditions and Jesus directly claiming that he was God, as a result of that, the religious leaders actually want to kill Jesus at this point. John 5 said, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath and also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they're already having the agenda in their hearts that they want to kill Jesus. They're searching for him. We're now within a matter of a few months before the cross. And once again, Jesus shows up. He's in the midst of the temple at one of their great feasts. And once again, here he is making these bold statements claiming deity, telling people to come to him for their spiritual need in their life. And these religious leaders, they want to put the kibosh on this as quickly as possible. So what they do now is they call to themselves the, the temple police, if you would, the officers that helped enforce order there on the temple grounds. And they want them to go and to arrest Jesus and take him into custody to silence him so he can stop making these kind of statements publicly among the people. That's what verse 44 is referring to when it says they wanted to take him but interesting, no one laid hands on him. Now, multiple reasons there would be for that. First of all, they didn't want to start a riot in the temple because there were many people who loved and followed Jesus. Secondly, they don't lay hands on Jesus, though they want to take him into custody because his intended hour has not yet come. If you look back in verse 30 of this chapter, it reminds us of that there. An attempt earlier failed to take Jesus in custody. It says they sought to take him, John 7:30, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So another reason they can't take Jesus into custody is because his life is under the divine sovereign control of the will of God. And it's not the right hour 
So therefore, they can't arrest Jesus. They can't take him into custody yet. Later on, it's not the ropes when they arrest Jesus that are keeping him. Later on, when they do take him into custody, you know why later on they're able to take Jesus into custody? Because he lets them. It wasn't his ropes that were holding him when he was bound. He was bound by his love for you and his love for me. That he wanted to die on the cross for your sins and do what he could to offer relationship to us. But at this point, it's not the timing, so they can't take Jesus into custody. But here's really the crux of the matter specifically in that hour. Look what happens as we read on. Here's the real reason, verse 45. It says, so the officers, the temple guards, they come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, empty-handed, of course, without Jesus in custody, and, and they said to the officers, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered and said, no man ever spoke like this man. Here's what happened here. They went to go arrest Jesus and they got arrested by hearing the word of the Lord in their hearts that they didn't know what to do. They went to arrest him. All right, we'll, yeah, we'll go do it. And they get, and then they start to hear Jesus speaking, it says, and they are literally, no pun intended, arrested in their hearts by the word of the Lord. That It seems that they hear the word of the Lord and it's so powerful they don't know what to do. These officers come back to the leaders who sent them and they're angry at them. They say, why haven't you brought him? Now keep in mind, honestly, this should have been a very easy arrest. These were trained sort of security guards, temple police, and all they got to do is go arrest this peaceful Jewish rabbi who's unarmed. And they come back and say, why haven't you brought him? What's the matter with you? And their answer is they say, no man ever spoke like this man. The, the idea here, what it's indicating to us, is the reason they could not fulfill their intention was the power of the word of the Lord was so strong in its impact, it seems that it just completely diminished their ability to fulfill their own intention and just that the power of God just came over their life in an incredible way. Now keep in mind, these temple guards certainly, would you agree, they had heard plenty of other teachers and rabbis in the temple. People always were speaking and teaching in the temple. But there was something that they heard that no one ever had spoken like Jesus. This man's words, I say, were unlike any other man. There was something about Jesus and the way that he spoke. It was filled with such wisdom and grace in its content. And the truths that he spoke about life and about spiritual matters just left them astonished. And the authority in which Jesus spoke it was unlike the way in which anyone else spoke with such confidence and this divine authority upon his life that as a result, the word of the Lord just left these temple guards marveling. They didn't know what to do. And as I said, when he spoke, it so moved them inside that they lost all desire and intention for anything else that they wanted to do in that moment. They said, this man spoke in a way where he seems to be unlike any other man. Again, this is a testament to the power of the word of the Lord and its effect upon people's lives. And can I just say this morning, many, many lives have been changed by people hearing the voice of the Lord in this room. I don't even want to envision what some of you once were, what some of you would have become 
what we could have been. But because of the power of hearing the voice of the Lord, our lives were changed. Our lives were changed. We went from being very crooked to flying straight and narrow for once in our lives. We went from being very bitter and angry and confused to being softened and becoming loving and compassionate. We went from being addicted to this and pursuing that and defiling this to repenting of those things and saying, I don't need that anymore. I don't want that anymore. I want to live differently. And this incredible thing happens. Why? Because the power of the voice of the Lord, because of the word of the Lord and its impact. And here, these men, they come back, they say, no one ever spoke like this man. And the word of the Lord just impacted their hearts. Well, obviously, that's not going to be sufficient for the Pharisees. Look at verse 47. It says, the Pharisees answered and said, are you deceived? In other words, they're just more enraged by this answer and they accuse the officers now, has he deceived you too? Like all of his other followers? They go on, verse 48, have any of the rulers, the Sanhedrin, or the Pharisees believed in him? So again, with this kind of arrogant, uh, somewhat elitist mindset, these religious leaders, uh, they now again further indicate None of the religious establishment has believed in him. In essence, what they're saying is there has anyone with any religious credibility here in Jerusalem or any of the spiritually elite believed in this man? If we haven't believed in him, why would you believe in him? What what would make you think if, if we, the spiritual elite, have not done this? And then they indicate, watch this, the only reason those common folk believe in Jesus is because they are so foolish and ignorant. Look at verse 49. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In other words, what they're saying is, look, these common people, his followers, they're just ignorant of the law. They're just stupid. They're ignorant of what's true spiritually. They don't understand. In fact, they say they're even cursed in their deception. They're cursed with the deception in such a way where only fools like them would trust in this Jesus or believe and follow in him. Now, doesn't that sound familiar still? Is it not true in our day and age again where people think they're so intellectually intelligent and they got the new novel idea that, that people look at those who believe in Jesus and follow him as if we're the fools? We're so naive and foolish and, and, and thinking Christians are just, they're just weak-minded, deceived people that are all brainwashed and, 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 and belligerent. And, and there's this idea where there's almost the implication that those who are really smart and educated and those who are really deeply intellectual and strong, they don't believe in Jesus and they certainly don't need to follow Jesus and there's sort of this idea that's conveyed that to be a Christian is an indication of your inferiority or some handicap. You need a crutch in your life and only those foolish and brainwashed would follow such a strong deception when the reality is it's the unbeliever, sadly, who is the one who's greatly deceived and who doesn't realize their spiritual deception in their rejection. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4. It says this, even if our gospel is veiled, 
It's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, the devil, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says that when a person chooses not to believe, that the devil somehow, spiritually, is able to then blind their mind all the more in spiritual deception. And the Bible says that those who do not believe are living in this spiritual blindness. They don't realize they're spiritually blinded, but they've been spiritually blinded in their mindset, their rationale, their reasoning by the very devil who wants to destroy their soul. And he says, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine upon them. And he says, therefore, the only reason that you and I that are saved are saved by the glorious grace of God is because the very God who commanded the light originally in creation to shine out of darkness. He says that same God has shown light into our hearts. He shed light into our hearts to illuminate us within to make us realize the reality of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that he, that he opened our understanding to that thing. So listen, do we get angry and antagonistic and argue? No, we need to pray and plead with God and intercede for unsaved people. Lord, they don't know they're blind. Lord, they don't know. And I once was blind, right? But now I see amazing grace. Lord, please shine into their heart, Lord. I can't say the right thing to help them see it. But Lord, if you shine into their heart, Shine them, let them see it, Lord. Open their eyes. And the wonderful thing is God wants to do that. God loves them. God can do that. But here we see this reality where they think that followers of Christ are so deceived and, and weak and cursed and so forth. Well, look at verse 50. This must have been quite a shocker. Nicodemus, notice, who had come to Jesus by night. Remember John chapter 3, that whole story. Being, this is the key, verse 50, parenthetically, being one of them. So this is one of the religious leaders now among that group. Nicodemus speaks up, verse 51, and says, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So at this point, as this tense moment's happening, one of their own among the religious leaders, Nicodemus, who they just swore, right? Not one of us is believed. He now stands up in the midst of this dialogue and he kind of speaks up in defense of Jesus a little bit. Now, this is quite a shocker. Nicodemus, remember, who had met Jesus back in John chapter 3, we saw, and he had that dialogue with Jesus, makes a stand for Jesus. And that was quite an incredible dialogue. He just asks an honest question here in relation to what the law said as Jews about righteously evaluating a person to give them a fair trial. He says, wait, let's be honest. Doesn't our law judge or does our law judge a man before it hears him out and knows what he is doing? So what Nicodemus is doing is he's trying to reason with his fellow religious leaders and to reason with them to prevent them from making a hasty decision about a very important matter, their spiritual life and their eternity. And you can hear Nicodemus saying here, wait, wait a minute. Shouldn't we consider what Scripture says? 
before we make our judgment about this matter or who Jesus is? Shouldn't we maybe look into the matter at least a little bit and give some proper consideration about this important decision? Shouldn't we consider God's word above our personal feelings and our preconceived ideas that we hold on to? Because technically, because of their preconceived ideas, that's what was causing them to fail to consider Jesus properly for who he really was. It was sort of their stubborn spiritual mindset that was making them judge Jesus wrongly and not genuinely take the time for themselves to check it out and to understand who Jesus was and what their real spiritual need was. And can I just say this morning, their being spiritually stubborn was stifling the Spirit of God in their life. And can I say to all of us, be careful because preconceived spiritual ideas sometimes that we hold, maybe we are raised in a particular spiritual upbringing or, or we participate in something, and we, then we have these preconceived spiritual ideas which we then can become very stubborn and adamant about spiritually. That can quench and resist the work of God's Spirit to help us come to the truth at times about what really matters. And we have to be careful of that in our lives. Well, look at verse 52. It says, they answer him. No doubt they weren't happy about what he just said, obviously. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And it says, and everyone then went to his house, but Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. So here, this intensity because of Nicodemus's statements. And again, you have to understand kind of almost the dynamic of this is he's saying, shouldn't we just consider what Jesus says? I mean, this would be like, let's say if the keynote speaker of the Democratic Convention this week got up and said, you know, before we present our ideas, shouldn't we at least consider what the Republicans are saying? I mean, could you imagine that, the, the intensity of, you know, that would come out of something like that? I mean, this is what this is like here. Shouldn't we at least consider, I mean, this is their own person from their party, their religious party, who's saying, shouldn't we just consider what Jesus says and give some more? Well, rather than respectful, they just instantly get totally offended. And that's what you can almost hear the sarcasm and disdain in their voices there in verse 42. They say, are you also from that lowly despised area of Galilee? Look for yourself, they say. Search history. No prophets ever come out of Galilee, out of that northern region there. Now, let me just say this. They sound very authoritative. In their, their, their arrogance and their acting superior, they sound very wise and smart, but they're completely wrong. So just because somebody gets real arrogant and superior in the way they talk doesn't mean they're right. Because the truth of the matter is, the prophet Jonah came from the area of Galilee, as also possibly did as well Nahum and Hosea and Elijah. Sadly, you can see from the religious leaders, the power of the word of the Lord also produces a very powerful effect when people reject it because they become very, in their deception, a lot of times arrogant and, and unreasonable and critical. I mean, you stubborn here. And, and again, it's just a good reminder. It's a dangerous thing to hear the word of the Lord and resist its powerful truth because it can really cause a person to spiral out of control. So at this point, the crowd dissipates. Everyone goes back to his house. Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives. 
You know, it's interesting to note here with this situation with Nicodemus that he sought to take a stand for Jesus among his religious leaders and peers and quite honestly to risk his status among the religious leaders. And I have to ask, why? Why would he do that? My personal belief is this. I believe it was that private meeting that happened in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus heard the word of the Lord. And since he had heard the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord that day had been burning in his heart, in his inner man, hammering away at his conscience, influencing, affecting his life, producing change in him to where this day he takes a stand for Jesus. And then when you read the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 19, it tells us there after Jesus' crucifixion as he's dead on the cross that it's Nicodemus, this same man, who comes and joins Joseph of Arimathea and helps take down the dead corpse of Jesus and bury his body in a tomb, which was an act not only of his love and respect for Jesus, but also of his willingness to completely associate with Jesus no matter what anyone else ever thought of him anymore. All why? For one reason, the impact of the word of the Lord in his life. The word of the Lord in his life. The powerful impact of it. You know, that title, the word of the Lord, is often used interchangeably, even in the Bible, to refer to the words of Jesus or the word of God. One thing is always sure, and that's this. God's word is powerful. It's powerful. It influences people. It changes people's lives. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hey, can I leave you with this personal encouragement this morning? Let the word of the Lord have its proper place in your life. Expose yourself to the word of the Lord. Be available at times to hear the word of the Lord at Bible studies, worship services, because it will change your life. It will have a powerful impact. And let me leave you with this critical exhortation. If in your personal life you have not recently been spending time in the word of the Lord, you need to get back into God's word. You need to reestablish a devotion life. Nothing will change you more. Nothing. Nothing. Oftentimes I meet with people, counsel about this, having this challenge, have this, have that. Do you know one of the most critical things I always try and send them away with? Are you in your Bible? Get back in your Bible. Because it's amazing. If you can get back people back into the Word of God and getting the Word of God going into their life daily, listen, I have watched it, witnessed it. People change. They overcome sin. They walk with Christ faithfully. They begin to live in a different way. Be in the Word. Be in the Word daily. If you're not doing it, establish that devotional discipline. It's critical. It will transform your life. Let's stand together. Let's pray.